Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. On this week's show, obviously uh, the Orange Bowl Classic, another missed opportunity for the Gators. Um, what would likely become a quadrant one win uh, slips away. Florida had a six-point lead in the second half. Just uh, didn't get it done offensively. Um, broken record. So we'll talk about it. Uh, shot selection dooms the Gators this time mostly, but we're going to break that down, break down Florida's defense. Excellent effort on that side of the ball. Um, and, you know, kind of talk about uh, the path forward. Um, big picture thoughts on the non-conference slate, which uh, at least for now only has one game left. Obviously, Baylor later on. But, but you know, we'll burn that bridge when we get there. Merry Christmas to everybody that's listened. Um, celebrating. Happy Hanukkah. Um, and, you know, we just hope you have a wonderful and blessed holiday season. Uh, we'll be back with you around Orange Bowl time. So enjoy the Orange Bowl as well. Go Gators. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, Unfortunately, the Gators will enter the Christmas break with uh, another loss in a game that would have helped the resume. Uh, they fall 65-62 to uh, what I think is a very good uh, Utah State team yesterday. But, but you know, they lose in sunrise on what was a neutral floor but really wasn't a neutral floor. Um, I think when you look at this game, and I'm joined as always by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Welcome, Eric. Merry Christmas, Eric. It's kind of a game that was defined by uh, two huge scoring droughts for the Gators, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, just how good Utah State is offensively, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, uh, and then you see that the that the Gators actually defended them uh, pretty well. They uh, they kept them under a point per possession. Uh, Utah State definitely still got theirs at, at times, but I would say uh, Florida definitely did played well enough defensively. And uh, to be honest, they actually played offensively f- well enough for you know maybe 20 minutes of the 40 minute game. The the problem was the uh, uh, the minutes that they weren't playing well offensively made for some some major droughts. That opening eight minutes or so, uh, where they had one field goal, uh, and then those uh, those near six minutes at the end of the game with without without a field goal. I, I mean, that'll uh, that'll sink you against uh, teams that aren't as good as Utah State. So I mean, the fact that they're able to even able to hang in the game uh, a little bit impressive given those two droughts. But I mean, you. Uh, uh, I know this is a this might be a little foolish to say, but I mean, yeah, you you take away one of those droughts, and it's it could be a different outcome because uh, to find a one possession game with with two major droughts like that against a really good Utah State team, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something. Yeah, I mean, it really seemed like a game that Florida had kind of gotten under control in the last ten minutes of the first half, first five minutes of the second half. Gators built a six point lead. Crowd was into the game. And then, uh, you know, Florida kind of tapered off. Just not enough consistent offense from this team. And, and again, the big scoring droughts that, that we saw last year, that we saw at times the year prior. Um, so really, you know, we're into our third season where these scoring droughts really come back and haunt Florida. And, um, you know, I thought with the 0 for 14 start, Eric, and this is one area where I, I am interested in, in – your thoughts, uh, I'm always interested in your thoughts, but in this particular idea, I thought Florida in the second stretch had more good looks 
than in the first stretch, that the 0 for 14 shot, uh, start was largely defined by poor shot selection. What say you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wrote about it this morning. Uh, you can go see that at Gator Country. Uh, but this was a, a very poor, I would say, the worst shot selection game from the Gators so far. <clears throat> so uh, if you want to look at uh, kind of overall, this wasn't just in the first stretch, uh, but overall, Florida took 15 dribble jumpers. Um, that's a lot of jump shots to take off the dribble. Um, 11 of those 15 were long twos, uh, many of which were, were heavily, heavily contested. Um, they also shot six floaters. Uh, they went one oh. for six. So, oh, and I should say, so they went four for 15 on dribble jumpers. Um, so taking 15 dribble jumpers, uh, was that was more dribble jumpers than the 13 catch and shoot jumpers they had. So, oh. which is not a sustainable number. Um, no. So that's, that's 11 long twos. Um, oh, and as well, so if we take all the, like, I, I do think all of those were poor attempts. So that's 21 bad shots just there between the dribble. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. A couple of the dribble jumpers, I, I didn't mind. I would say that, like, three of them were good. Um, but out of 18 of those of those tough shots, only one of them was in the final 10 seconds of a shot clock. That was that uh, that Quez Glover um, turnaround fader kind of prayer. And at the end of the game, you know, we had to put that one up. Other than that, all of these dribble jump shots, all of these terrible floaters, they all happened right in the meat of the shot clock before Florida really worked the defense. So um, so I thought that that first kind of big stretch that Florida didn't score, uh, they took a lot of the dribble jumpers there. They took a lot of the floaters there. So I, I was kind of – I kind of looked at it. There was a point where Florida was stuck at two points, and I went back and looked at all their possessions and what they ran, and I, I saw that they had all these – times where players didn't go through the offensive sets and instead dribbled down into long twos that were contested. I mean, if you would have told me that Florida was going to shoot a bunch of tough dribble twos and, and tough floaters, uh, then, you know, I probably wouldn't have been too surprised that they had a, that had a big scoring drought. Yeah. I mean, neither would I, um, you know, I think some of that, I feel like some of the, some of the stuff that, that with the tough twos, the inefficient twos, is stuff that the, the Aggies defense kind of design is to tempt you into taking, especially the way that they drop screen and roll coverage, um, I think. And then the other thing is if you're not cutting off your screens um, more consistently, which I actually thought was a big problem for Florida offensively yesterday. Like I thought that Florida set a lot of you know what we might call uh, – I don't know how every coach has different nomenclature, but it was a lot of lazy ball screens where the screener wouldn't roll hard or cut hard, or even, you know, you could just do like a little head fake to try to maybe get some room on the perimeter off the screen. There just wasn't enough of that yesterday. Uh, It makes you a little easier to defend. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, there's kind of uh uh, there's a there's a term that's used in coaching a lot. This is a lot of like NBA stuff, but it's called two for two when you're talking about screen and roll coverage. Uh, and what that kind of refers to is when you're guarding a screen and roll that has you know two basic offensive players. You've got the ball handler and the screener. Um, if you defend that screen and roll perfectly with the two guys, you don't involve anyone else in the, else in the action. So when you say two for two, that means you just you guard a screen and roll and you're playing two on two. You don't involve other players on the floor. So when you see how Utah State defended these ball screens, it really was going two for two. Uh, it really seemed like it was Florida's ball handler and uh, screen setter, uh, and it just didn't seem like other players were involved in the action. So uh, I, I do think that a lot of it is their really good, uh, really sound pick-and-roll defense. Uh, yeah. At the same time, when Florida is taking all these dribble jumpers with 18 seconds on the clock, 
I, I, you can look at it as good defense. I thought the Florida got goaded into a lot of those shots, but at the same time, I mean, if there's 18 seconds on the clock, if the action is defended well, that doesn't mean, hey, I'm left with exclusively this mid-range jump shot. I think that that has to be a scenario where it's like, hey, this, uh, this pick and roll was defended well. Uh, let's do something else. Let's get the ball moving. And, and that didn't happen. Yep. No, I agree with that. And, you know, and that certainly to your point was both halves and not necessarily just in the scoring droughts. I'm thinking specifically of, we had one Scotty Lewis air ball three pointer off a, uh, off a dribble, which it's just, I'm sorry. He's not, he just isn't ready to take off the dribble three pointers, Eric. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about Scotty Lewis later and I don't want to pick on him. It's just kind of one that stood out. Uh, but to prove that I'm not just picking on him, how about we pick one by one 18 footer from the elbow by Kerry Blackshear with 20 seconds left in the shot clock. Yeah. He had a rough one also right in the, the start of that, uh, that really bad run that the Gators had in the, the first, uh, first half where uh, they had the big drought. Uh, one play that I think really defined it was they actually got the ball moving really well. Uh, Noah Locke has a wide open three point shot. Uh, he pump fakes it. He takes a dribble and then he steps back into a long two. That's well contested. I thought that, yeah, was that was terrible. That, that was one that really, you know, that was a true open three off the catch. That is the shot that, that is you need to desire over anything else. A, an open catch-and-shoot three with your feet set, uh, that is what the Gators need to aspire to do. Get those and, uh, and shots at the rim. And he got that, and he wasn't thinking that. He was thinking, I'm going to go try to take a bounce and do something from there. So that, that was a great shot traded for a bad shot. And that's, that's when the kind of um, – yeah, kind of hurt. But uh, one <laughs> other thing I'll mention while uh, – and I, this is a drum I'm just going to keep beating, but I, I, once again, we've got long droughts both at the end of the game and also uh, right at the beginning of the game where, uh, where Coach White doesn't use a timeout to try to, uh, try to stop momentum. I mean, 0 for 14 off the, off the top of the game. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised that it got to 0 for 8 or 0 for 9 or 0 for 10 without a timeout being called. And one other thing that I think is interesting, uh, for some, some of you might not know these rules, so so you start the game with three 30-second timeouts and one uh, one-minute timeout. So those are the four timeouts you see. Um, you can only carry over two of your 30-second timeouts to the second half. So last night or yesterday, Florida didn't use their any timeouts in the first half, which means they just lost a 30-second timeout going into the second half. Yep. Um, so, so anyways, so Florida doesn't use a timeout in that run. Um, they have other times in the first half they could have used that timeout because they only scored 27 points uh, and they didn't use it. And I just, I, I'm just not entirely sure what the reasoning would be behind that. Um, I've talked at length, the research is there, why I think that Florida should use their timeouts earlier. Um, and I just see a scenario where uh, Florida has a timeout. They just choose not to use it in, in the first half uh, in the midst of a big scoring drought. Uh, they also don't use a timeout while they, uh, you know, go nearly six minutes in, in clutch time without, without scoring. And instead just hold on to two timeouts there. And uh, it's just something I'm just like, per perhaps the staff has a, has a reasoning behind that. And there's maybe some research behind it. Uh, but to me, I just, uh, I don't know why they don't use their timeouts earlier, just quite frankly. So timeout usage is one of the things that I wrote down uh, last night with, with the, uh, with my kind of two big staff indicts. And, I, and I, the, the situation I isolated on Twitter, which we should discuss as, as the end of the game, because I felt like Florida's down 56-55 and, and they got Nimhard one-on-one -on -one in a mismatch in the post. 
And it was a pretty good matchup for Andrew. And we've seen, really dating back to late last season, Eric, we've seen Andrew be able to score um, in mismatches in the post, use his body and post up. Uh, but, you know, the Gators were very tired then. Mike White had two timeouts, plus the under four media hadn't happened yet. So I was very disappointed in the timeout usage. Now, the new rule would probably have meant that the timeout would have just triggered the under four media. But that's fine, Eric. That, that just makes it a three, four-minute timeout to, to get the team some rest. And I would have. And, and here's the proof I'll offer, which you know is as close to you know, my, my seats were mid-court, row eight. So those are pretty good. Um, and Andrew clearly wanted KJ to clear out so that he couldn't get doubled by health defense on that possession. And Kerry heard him, I think, but I don't think KJ had the energy to cut and clear. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, he was looking fatigued in that final stretch. I mean, I was working pretty tirelessly, tirelessly on the glass. Um, I, I also thought that he was just getting absolutely headhunted by, by Utah State's offense, um, which was just excellent, excellent coaching there. Yeah, it's great. Uh, by yeah. someone who I think is just an awesome, awesome coach and Craig Smith at uh, Utah State, who um, I don't know how long he's going to be at Utah State because someone, someone at a high major needs to, <laughs> needs to get him. I hope he doesn't because, I mean, I love when mid-major programs prosper, but, like, good Lord, someone is going to – Someone is someone's going to give him a lot of money to coach in the high major level. Anyways, I thought that Kerry Blackshear was uh, obviously working incredibly tirelessly on the offensive glass uh, against a pretty physical Utah State front court. Um, even though they're a little bit undersized after at, at times when uh, when Cato went down, uh, but uh, you know he's doing a lot offensively. Uh, he just looked absolutely gas at the end. I mean, it looked like that. I'm just watching the TV broadcast. Usually, you can tell those things live even more. So I'm sure you had a you had an even better look at that. Uh, but yeah, just uh, you know, t- timeout usage has been something that uh, that comes up on the podcast, uh, comes up on the forums, comes up on Twitter, uh, comes up when I did the research and wrote about it. Um, so I'd be interested if there actually was like um, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of method that the, that White and the staff uses to because it really seems like they call their timeouts uh, roughly at the same time every game. It doesn't really matter whether Florida is playing really well or really poorly or having droughts or playing more consistently so may so maybe there is some uh some research and reasoning behind it but uh you know i think you you play a one possession game with utah state um i think people who kind of know the way i view basketball is always like like i am all about you need to win on the margins you just need to find every possible way you can to uh, uh to affect your positively affect your your chances of winning by small percentages and those will add up um right now i just don't think florida is getting the best use of their timeouts so uh, in, in a game that's uh, that's one possession when you've got some droughts, uh, maybe it just uh, shines a little brighter then. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, it, it goes into that control the controllables, which is really all coaches can do. And, you know, I, timeout usage is, is really important in, in a game like this, which is, was really kind of a, a high-level second-round NCAA tournament game because you've got a neutral floor, you've got a neutral floor that's not really a neutral floor, which is – now with the geographic proximity, Eric, we have, you know, a lot of first and second round games that are like that where, you know, it's neutral, but it's not totally neutral anymore. Um, and I'll say this cause we have more to talk about, but I, I kind of wanted the, the Florida basketball hour bird's eye view. And, and it's important to know that these are just thoughts. I kind of jotted down and Eric may have differing thoughts. And if he ends up disagreeing with kind of the, the bird's eye 
few big picture take I have of this game. You know, I'm going to make sure that Eric gets a chance to tell you guys what he thinks. But, but kind of my view is that a loss to Utah State, uh, a team full of upperclassmen with an All-American guard um, that I think will win a game in the NCAA tournament, maybe even two, Eric, uh, it's not devastating. I think what hurts is that yesterday uh, technically would have been only a quad two yesterday. I think eventually it blossoms into a quad one because other than San Diego State uh, and, and Nevada, that team's going to, I think, bull its way through the Mountain West. And, and so that's, you know, a big win opportunity that's lost. Further, uh, I, the Gators are now, I think, one and four against good basketball teams. Um, I think maybe they're two and four, depending on what we see from Miami as the season goes forward. Uh, I count UConn as good. I know Eric doesn't, isn't quite as convinced with UConn. I do think with James Booknight, they're, they're pretty good. Even if they aren't good, I think losing at Gampel Pavilion it's not a crime, but again, would have been a really nice feather in the cap to have. Uh, the Canes have a couple of nice wins, but they also look really bad. In, in any event, at times they look really bad. In any event, a, a team with the nation's most coveted grad transfer, uh, a consensus top 10 recruiting class, its third consecutive top 20 recruiting class, three returning starters, including a five-star point guard. These are all things when you put them together, you should be better than one and four against good basketball teams, which is where I think Florida is. The idea in Gainesville with all due respect is not to play a difficult schedule. Like Florida does that every year under Mike white. They did it under Billy Donovan. Most years, the idea is to compete for championships. The idea is to win tough games. Uh, I don't think Florida has won enough of them. I think a win yesterday. Um, and I, and I think Eric and I said this on the last podcast, uh, changes some of the perceptions about this team's non-conference slate, right? I think if you close nine and three and you've got wins over Xavier and Utah State, plus a Charleston Classic championship, uh, you know you objectively would need to feel pretty good about where Florida is. Now you could be mad, and but I think that the mad mad at nine and three would be a little less realistic in my view. Instead, that's not where Florida is. They're going to be you know seven and four, eight and four maybe if they beat Long Beach State. And then we're wondering, you know, what might have been the last two months. And with the SEC down a bit, Eric, uh, due to coaching turnover, due to some very young teams, you know, it, it got worse now. Tennessee just lost Lamonte Turner. Um, I think that compounds the issue because now Florida's margin for error is smaller. Their chances at capturing big wins in league play is smaller. So, uh, Eric, any, any thoughts before we kind of – move on i may have talked too long but I, I thought that those were kind of important to get out there well the thing about florida not uh kind of their their struggles to get the the win over the good team i i feel like that has been a little bit of a common uh common theme the last couple of years uh, yeah. the last two seasons at their ncaa tournament resume was uh, well seasons, they don't yeah. really have a they don't really have a big win uh but they don't have any bad losses and i think that's kind of when we look at the schedule i mean i I don't think any of the losses, like none of the losses, you look at them and you say like, wow, what a, what an awful loss. Like Florida doesn't have one of those. And Florida, quite frankly, hasn't had one of those uh, under white. Like, I mean, the Loyola Chicago loss was at Georgia. the time. It was That's like, it. Georgia, yeah, last year. And, Georgia. And, yeah. But I mean, there's not like a, uh, there's not like a New Jersey Institute of Technology loss or you know, there's not like saying. a cop and say like, that's what I like. There's yeah, uh, yeah. so when you look at like the worst losses under, under coach white, it's like, well, at the time that Loyola Chicago one hurt, but that's turned out to be a final four team. And you know, that Georgia one 
uh, it wasn't great, but, but yeah, they just really haven't had those like devastating losses, but they haven't gotten those big wins. And I like, you look at this non-conference and it's like, all right, do any of these, any of these losses kind of stand alone as terrible losses? Uh, no, they don't. But unfortunately the best win right now is, is against Xavier, who is uh, looking like a good team, but uh, uh, past that there, there's just not enough there. And, you know, Florida gets into the tournament going 500 in league play last year. That's just not going to be the case with this SEC there. The league is just significantly down. So right. uh, there is a chance that they, uh, because yes, there is wins to be had that. So Florida can really turn it around and play really well in, in conference play and, uh, and do really well there and compete for a conference championship. Uh, but at the same time, if they kind of stumble a little bit and don't really do well, uh, there's just not enough meat on the bone there on their SEC schedule, just the way that the league's played in the non-league schedule for uh, for Florida to sneak in. So uh, you could look at it a few different ways. You can say, like, you, like for, if the SEC was as good as it was last year right now, I, I personally think I'd be pretty scared going into league. Uh, but uh, because it's down, I kind of say, like, hey, this is a team that, that can kind of still uh, catch their stride and, and go on to, to get somewhat something closer to their ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I think they can too, and I don't think this is a let's hope they come together and end up ten and eight in league play. Like if they do that again, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I don't think ten and eight in league play in this league is going to get them into the tournament. Um, not with no, not with what. No. Maybe if they beat Baylor, you know, maybe if they beat Baylor, they could hang their hat on Baylor and Xavier, and and sneak in. But um, you know, I think I think that the league is going to be there for the taking. I think the Lamonte Turner injury. Uh, wow, obviously terrible um, for Lamonte, you know, makes it even more possible that, that the league is there for the taking. Um, what bothers me is that, look, this type of game, a neutral floor game that isn't a neutral floor game against a battle-tested senior-laden mid-major team, it's super valuable for March, but it's also the type of game you need to win um, so that you can play neutral floor games that aren't neutral floor games in March. What I mean by that is if, if this Florida team with this roster misses out on a chance to play in Tampa, Florida on the first weekend, this type of loss will be why, Eric. And, and that's what's so unfortunate about missing that opportunity yesterday to me. Yeah, yeah that's definitely true that with the opportunity to play at Tampa, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, it's kind of interesting because before the year, uh, you know, when you looked at the NCAA tournament sites, you saw the Tampa and you said, hey, like that would be awesome. Uh, at the same time, if Florida were to play in Tampa, they would be, uh, you know, a high enough seed that hopefully you wouldn't worry too much about uh, how home court advantage would uh, uh, would affect your your game. Because I mean, you'd be in a yeah, four yeah, thirteen. True. You know, you'd be a, you'd true. be a high seed against a lower seed. But uh, uh, but still, yeah. I mean, if they get shipped off to Omaha or something, I mean, who knows? It's a little different story. And uh, uh, you know, there's really good mid major teams out there like Utah State. Like a few teams in Utah State's league with with Nevada and. San Diego State, who looks awesome, and even New Mexico, who looks really good, and uh, the Atlantic Ten has some of those teams too that are frisky. And uh, yeah, this could come. This could, you know, this could matter. And uh, also from a fan perspective, I think the chance to see an NCAA tournament game in Tampa means a lot to your fans. So I think it's something that, uh, not that this team needs any more motivating factors to go in games. I mean, I, I don't think this team lacks for motivation, but no, no, just all elements of it. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the Hive is going to be the Hive anyway, too. I don't think. Like, I actually don't think the hive is growing that much um, in the fire Mike white hive I'm referencing. I should just tell that in case we have a new listener. Um, and we certainly don't fire coaches at Florida or any school for losing to very good NCAA tournament teams um, like Utah state. It's not football. 
one loss doesn't derail your championship dreams. Um, but this is the type of game when you play in front of a partisan crowd of people who actually, for what it's worth, paid a lot of money. I mean, that, those are expensive tickets. Um, you know, I don't, the Orange Bowl has got to do something about that uh, because I thought the crowd was sparser than in years past. And, you know, I think some of that has to do with just ticket pricing for that double header. Um, but, but those are, those are against Florida's got to figure out how to win. And, you know, I wouldn't have started this show, Eric, and invited somebody as smart as Eric to, to be on it with me if, if I weren't one of the biggest advocates of this program and, and I didn't see some of the best facilities in college basketball, according to pretty much everybody, um, <laughs> and a wonderful home arena and environment, one of the best student sections in college basketball, if I didn't think that, you know, Florida was capable of more. So I think what Florida wants to see is progress and more important at this point, Eric is consistency. Uh, you know, I, that's what kind of my takeaway was driving home. The biggest problem with the Mike white era, especially the last two years and now two months. So, you know, you take it back to Chioza senior season last year, the last two months has been consistency, Eric. You lose to Utah State after you look like a world beater in Brooklyn four days earlier. Um, but it's not just that kind of consistency. Let's Consistency on offense, which is has been Eric's bread and butter, writing all the best articles about it. You get your offense to a spot where it's the most efficient it's been on a, from a Ken Palm standpoint, from a Howsam metric standpoint in three seasons. And then you go out and shoot 32% versus Utah State and turn the ball over 13 times. Uh, consistency from one practice to the next. How many times has Mike White taught that? You know, consistency on your home floor. You win five in a row in the league play last year, and then you lose to the worst Georgia team in a decade. So instead of being the four seed in your conference tournament, you're the eight. Uh, now, luck, Andrew Nimmar hit a shot, and it, that didn't matter. But consistency at home. They lost six home games. So I think, you know, maybe some pe- the people in the hive are like nodding their head like the Jack Nicholson gif right now, you know? Like, ah, he's making the case against Mike White. I'm not. Michael White's not going anywhere based on every conversation I've had. Uh, And in fact, I'm not even sure his seat is that warm, which could irritate some people. But I think that the case for Mike White to be better is it has to start with overseeing a program that's more consistent. And And you can't just be a boat that looks attractive in port, you know, for anybody that sails or or boats. And then you get out on sea, and then there's one problem after another, and whenever you plug one leak, another springs. And that's kind of where Florida is right now. You know, I'm not actually sure if I, – I maybe I maybe don't agree with that fully, uh, the consistency okay. thing. But because what's uh, – kind of going back to it, to like uh, like I was saying, is I, I think it's been Florida's inability to, to get the big win. Like I, I would say Florida – like I look at a team that's inconsistent, and I say like – hey, they could go out and beat anyone, uh, but they could also go lose to a, you know, low major at home. And again, Florida hasn't had any of those, like, just devastating, awful losses. Uh, but they, I just feel like, like, if you were to say, like, like if I were to ask you, Neil, like, what are the biggest wins in Florida basketball over the last three years? I mean, I think that, you know, some are going to come to memory, but I think if you just scan up and down their schedule, um, there's there's not a lot of those marquee wins. So I think, uh, so you can say like, you know, they look like world beaters in Brooklyn, but I mean, that is against Providence. So, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. And I mean, <laughs> Mike, what, like you, like you mentioned, I mean, Mike White talking about consistency and practice, uh, that's huge. And that hasn't been there. Uh, but I would just say like, 
if I were to say what has been the problem with the Mike White era, in my mind, it hasn't as much been consistency as much as it's uh, as it's like, hey, like Florida just hasn't been able to like heighten their ceiling. Uh, like there was that moment, you know, three or, you know, two and a half years ago or whatever, you know, the PK 80, um, you beat Gonzaga in what was like the best college basketball game of that season from an entertainment standpoint, all across college basketball. Yeah. Uh, you almost beat Duke. I mean, like that was like, that was awesome. That was like a chat. That was a time where Florida looked like the number one team or, you know, like they could be challenging for a national championship. Uh, that hasn't really ever been the case, but there also hasn't been a case. Like I know some people now are saying like, Oh yeah, Florida looks like a, a team that's going to lose in the NIT first round. Uh, there hasn't really been that, that kind of down moment. So, so for me, I would say uh, if I look at the, the unfortunate parts of the last few years, I would just say that it's Florida has never been able to, to make it look like their ceiling was, was particularly that high. Okay. Okay. That's, I mean, you know, and that might be, that might be a better way of framing it. I, for me, I, it's somewhat of a consistency issue. And, and I think, you know, I, I can't reiterate enough that it's not college football and that you, you can get way better in January and February. You know, Auburn was 13 and six last year and two and four in the SEC. Um, with a roster that had more veteran players. And, you know, actually they, they were 16 and eight at one point and five and six in the SEC. So they had played, Eric, they had played 11 league games and had a losing record. <laughs> and now obviously different conference, but they went to the final four. Um, and nobody now, and, and, you know, they were a jump shot from what losing in the first round. Right. But, um, but they still got to the final four. So I think, that's interesting. Uh, consistency from Keontae Johnson is kind of where I wanted to transition. What should let me let me ask Eric this? Any more you want to say on this issue, or and and then if I don't, should I do Keontae Johnson, or should I have my other big issue with the staff yesterday? Which one should I go with first? Uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll first say that I think Mike White would agree with you. I mean, uh, that, in yeah. terms of consistency, I mean, uh, Mike White talks about consistency. I was I was thinking about that after I. Uh, uh, rebuttaled is that you know what uh, <laughs> coach white talks a lot about consistency and he knows the team so uh, you know what neil i will probably uh, concede to you on that one that uh you and coach white are on the same page uh but yeah why don't you bring up uh why don't you bring up your keontae johnson uh piece and then you can uh, and then you can get back into the coaching staff we'll break up the uh, the coaching talk with some uh with some keontae johnson i like it uh keontae five shots inside the paint yesterday over five um sorry six shots inside the paint one for six so uh, very unusual for him. Um, he also missed a wide open triple from his spot that would have extended the lead to five late, pretty late in the game. Uh, with Florida had the lead, uh, and and Johnson is pretty good from that spot. Now Florida didn't have anybody there to offensive rebound, but man, was he open! Um, interesting fact, Eric, which leads to my question for you on Keontae. Keontae has six games this year where he scored in double figures. Florida's five and one in those games. The lone loss was to Florida State. Florida's two and three when Keontae doesn't and nearly lost to Towson in another one where he did not. So very well could be one and four in games where Keontae does not score double figures. He was three for 13 from the floor yesterday. Do we continue to underestimate his value to Florida? Yeah, I think so. I mean, something that's... uh in regards to maybe his inconsistency of usage is just uh, as you see Florida 
playing a lot more ball screen, which is something that I think that they should be doing. I mean, I, I wrote the, the article myself where it showed that the ball screen is one of the best things they can do for their offense, especially the side ball screen that actually worked really well against Utah State. Uh, but the thing is that Keontae Johnson doesn't really fit into that. I mean, he's not someone – well, you know what? He actually has had some good moments as a pick-and-roll ball handler, uh, though they haven't gone to it a ton. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, usually Kerry Blackshear as the primary screener. So uh, he doesn't – I see the way that they uh, – against Utah State where they were looking to do a lot of the ball screen offense, uh, and it's – Keontae Johnson doesn't, doesn't uh, have a natural fit in that, especially when he is uh, – uh, when he's not uh, – uh, when there's not actions for him to get cuts off the ball. And uh, like you said, he missed those jumpers. Uh, but he's someone that it does seem like uh, when he uh, when he really is a, a focal uh, focal point and uh, uh, playing well, it, it gives the Gators a, ch- a chance to win, with it, especially his work on the glass for a team that needs it. Um, his ability to, uh, uh, to go up and get those tough rebounds is huge. And, uh, yeah, I would say if I – you were to you were to look at the game before and say like hey Keontae Johnson wouldn't be awesome do you think Florida has a chance to win against Utah State I mean it would be tough to say that they uh, they might yeah um agree with that agree with that I thought that uh my my guess my other issue with the staff yesterday because I wanted to talk about defense and, and what Utah State does on offense a little bit with you because I think it illustrates some of Florida's offensive woes to watch a team like Utah State um, but my other big end yesterday was Trey Mann. I think we need to talk about Trey Mann. Um, <sighs> comes off his best game as a Gator. And, you know, foul trouble has him on the bench in the first half. And I thought that was unfortunate because he had kind of made a play late in the shot clock. And he really is kind of Florida's best late shot clock buster. He's He's – what Sam Merrill is to Utah State, the guy that if it all breaks down, he can he can make a play. He picked up a third foul, Eric, on a bad defensive play in the second half and sat. What what did you think of the decision not to utilize him after that? Because, um, I mean, did you see something with him defensively that meant, hey, Trey needs to stay on the bench? To me, it was kind of confounding. Like, they, I just don't know how Florida can continue to not utilize his offensive ability. Uh, you know what? He's, he is making it tough at times just because he has had some tough turnovers. Uh, he has missed some of the shots that he, that, uh, you know, you'd hope to make. Uh, but I mean, he, uh, and also, yeah, I, I don't think he's the, the best defender right now as a, as a freshman who yeah, yeah. uh, doesn't, uh, yeah, he's just not super physical at the point of attack cause he's slight framed. Uh, doesn't read, doesn't, doesn't slide his feet particularly well. I think he's had some good moments actually as an off ball defender. Um, which is really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I, I just see that the offensive upside he has, and I just know that if Florida is going to do anything close to reaching their ceiling, he has to be a part of it. I, I um, maybe I'm wrong, I guess. Uh, but if I were just to, to deliver one particularly strong take, I just truly believe that Trey Mann has to be a key contributor on this team. Um, if Florida is going to come anywhere near their ceiling. And I, and I know that part of that is not just, Hey, like Florida needs to, use him and play him 30 minutes a game uh you know he does have to clean up some of the some of the tougher flo- like he took a couple of those really bad floaters i talked about earlier in the podcast yeah he, uh, he did have one really bad turnover um he had some tough dribble jumpers i mean he hit the one ridiculous one um he took actually one of the dribble jumpers i didn't mind he used the ball screen and the defense just went underneath of it and he got his feet underneath him and rose up with a jumper 
Uh, I actually didn't mind that dribble jump shot, but uh, he, you know, in the past has taken some tougher ones. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, he gets on the floor and I don't think he's always kind of used as a primary ball handler. And I think that's the way he needs to be used. So uh, I, I've got to say, like, uh, I'm someone who does think he needs to be used. I do understand that he's making it tough when he maybe turns the ball over. Then on the subsequent defensive possession, uh, allows some dribble drive penetration. Uh, I understand he makes it tough, but I, I just think, like, White has shown that he can get anyone to defend. I mean, he, he has had some pretty poor defenders that he has turned into really good defenders and yeah. guys who have played within a scheme that's a really good defensive scheme. Um, uh, unfortunately, there just are, are not a lot of great offensive players uh, on this team that can kind of create off their own. Uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a better chance to me of Trey Mann turning into a very capable defender uh, than there is of some of the other guys that are maybe trusted more defensively uh, becoming kind of late shot off the dribble uh, creators offensively. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and that's a good spot to transition into our first listener question from Justin Fortner, um, which kind of slides right in with the man discussion. But he said, "What's with the shortened bench minutes, Neil and Eric? I understand the foul issues for man, but boy, heavy minutes for four starters. If you're going to do that, maybe use some timeouts better to manage fatigue. Either way, it seems like poor game management." Yeah, I mean, uh, timeouts for <laughs> yeah. fatigue, that becomes a little tougher. I mean, when it comes to using timeouts, uh, I'm all about, like, using it to stop runs and stop momentum in the bulk of the game, not saving them for the end. I mean, you can factor in rest a little bit. Uh, the rest and the drought in the second half definitely coincided with each other, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so I wish there was a timeout there. Um, Billy Donovan, I don't, don't want to interrupt you. Billy Donovan was a fan of the late game timeout before the media timeout. Um, Bruce Pearl likes that too. And, and they, that's the only time he would use it for rest. And that's kind of what I saw yesterday. Like that would have been so useful. Yeah. And I think that you can, uh, maybe try to like sneak in some more minutes by like, Hey, you know, what TV timeout is coming in, in a minute, maybe get a quick sub for Nemhard there uh, yes. for the one minute of game time into like, do that in the first the first half of the under eight or the second half of the under 12, just kind of sneaking an extra rest. Um, I mean, I, I coach high school basketball at a drastically different uh, level than uh, the SEC. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have a particularly deep team at the, the small school I coach at. Um, I've got some really good players. You know, I, I am thinking constantly about, hey, here's the quarter break because we're FIBA and play four quarters. Hey, let's, uh, how can I get this guy out for the last minute of the, of the first quarter and the first minute of the second quarter so he can actually play 18 minutes but still get the most rest possible? Uh, stuff like that. I, I do think with the TV timeouts, sneaking guys out, saying like, hey, for the minute before and then the possession or two after the TV timeout, I mean, that, yeah. that could turn into seven or eight or so minutes of rest or, uh, something like that. Um, I, I will say this. I was someone who was a big proponent of, of Omar Payne early in the season. Uh -huh. um, he, these last couple games, man, I mean, he gets on the floor and it's not his turnovers, but a bunch of these Andrew Nemhart turnovers that he's, that Nemhart's just getting crucified for on, on social media. Uh, there is some, there's some big miscommunications with Payne and talking about, so there was times where, uh, you know, he didn't roll, but the pass came. So it just went right to a, to an Aggie. Uh, there was times where he got the ball at the top of the Princeton offense and just uh, just threw it away. I, mean, I, I Omar Payne has started to be just because of offensively. I mean, he's making mistakes that are keeping him out of the game, and uh, that I think has made him tougher to play. 
Dante Bassett, I don't know. I mean, he's someone who's battled injuries. Someone I also thought that uh, has played pretty well when he has gone into games in, in short stretches. So I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, yeah, surprised me too. There. So, but, uh, but hey, certainly could be injury. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I thought that they were going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of good options at the five and get 40 quality minutes of center play this year. Uh, they're, you know, you look at a game like, like yesterday and they just couldn't get those bench minutes from, uh, uh, from a backup five that they really trusted. And it meant Kerry Blackshear being a little bit overextended and it meant not getting the best out of Kerry Blackshear. So I'm um, a little bit of the problem there. So I, I, I'll say maybe injury from Bassett, just cause I'm not really sure why he wouldn't get on the floor more. But um, I, I do understand. I, I do think Payne has struggled these last few games. And uh, in terms of like uh, some of the like Nemhart, who you want playing a lot of minutes, uh, I, I do think they may, maybe need to be a little bit creative about, hey, let's take him out a minute before the TV timeout. As soon as play comes out of the TV timeout, uh, send him to the bench and the next stoppage he'll get in. And that'll, uh, you know, maybe he's only out for a minute 40 of game time, but it's like he got the rest as if he was out for five or six minutes of game time. And I think they need to be creative that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Uh, Sarah in Tampa, because you brought up Nimhard, asked, uh, you know, is some of the fan criticism of Nimhard pretty unfair? It seems like some of the turnovers were miscommunications with young players, uh, or is that just me? So I could have thrown that in there before you brought it up, but I think Eric kind of already answered your question with his position on that. Uh, yeah, I think that I think he's gotten a lot of unfair criticism. People think that it's him over, like, the amount of people that say, like, oh, Andrew Nemhart just walks the ball up the floor and just dribbles the air <laughs> out of it. Uh, well, when, when they're calling sets, I don't think people really understand that people need to get to spots. Um, so I think that there's a lot of unfair criticism there. Um, I also, you know, he's had some big miscommunications with Omar Payne, I, I, which uh-huh. I mean, that's a, obviously not a lot of time that he's on the floor for that to happen. Um, but that's happened a little bit. Uh, Nemard has had some tough turnovers, forcing things at time because I, at times because I feel like he um, really struggles to, uh, or sorry, not struggles. I feel like he was really feeling the weight of Florida's offensive struggles, and he felt like he needed to make a play. Um, unfortunately, that's not his number one skill set of just going and solo getting a bucket. Playmaking, um, right? Also, specifically last night, he uh, his defense got a lot of uh, a lot of people weren't very happy with his defense. I actually didn't think he defended that bad. And I thought that a lot of the breakdowns were pick and roll where I, I thought that Kerry Blackshear was at fault. And that was something that yeah. uh, I, a few times this year, people have really gotten on Andrew Nemhart for his defense and pick and rolls where a lot of times, at least personally, I think it's Kerry Blackshear. A lot of times finding himself in no man's land where he's not really taking away the roller or the ball handler. And yep. uh, while I'm not entirely privy to, to the exact way that Florida wants to guard golf, ball strength, ball strengths, um, I think that uh, I think that Nemhard is taking some unfair criticism there. So I, I do think that a lot of the criticism to to Nemhard has been has been unfair. Well, I think Florida's guarded ball screens uh, in different ways this year too. I don't think that the program necessarily has. They're not like Utah State, where it's like one where they really predominantly play one pick and roll coverage. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one area where I had disagreed with some suggestions of fans was that I, I thought Florida was, was quite good defensively most of the game. And Craig Smith said, you know, after the game, he said, hey, but Florida really guards the Florida really guards you. Um, you know, that's, that's the best defense we've played this season. Uh, we did a nice job of, of establishing a rhythm at times in the second half, but they're so disruptive. So, you know, their coach certainly thought Florida was disruptive. You, you mentioned the, 
under a point per possession, only the second time that that's happened to them this season. Also, Utah State made a lot of tough shots, uh, quite honestly, especially Sam Merrill, and I thought both the Brock Miller threes, which were huge baskets, uh, were just really brutally hard makes. Dude's in his face. Um, I thought in the second half, uh, there was, you know, Utah State did go on the run to kind of steady the game. I guess it was like a either a 9-0 or 12-2 run, whatever it was, to when they were down six and they came back and took the lead. But for the most part, Florida played outstanding defense. They communicated well, especially against all those screen-the-screener actions that Utah State runs. A lot of them, Florida was still able to communicate well and force some hard looks. I did think that there were times that Blackshear got caught in that stuff, uh, much more than Andrew Nimhard. Um, they forced Utah State into a season-high 16 turnovers, Eric. Um, so, uh, you know, I thought Florida certainly played well enough to win defensively. Any thoughts? Yeah, definitely played well enough to defensively to win the game. Uh, yeah, I thought that the screen and roll defense wasn't, wasn't great at times. I thought that Noah Locke got really, uh, got really hurt on some of those curl actions. Uh, but those are just really well executed plays that, uh, are, are tough yeah, we're going to talk about those <laughs> and, uh, like, but also, I mean, Sam Merrill just, just made some shots. And, uh, I, I yeah. do think once again, like, uh, Florida, uh, the way that they did kind of pressure and create turnovers, I think that that's, uh, that's the way that Florida is going to need to play defensively. I don't know. Like some of these last uh, uh, recent teams, Florida has been able to play a little more conservatively defensively and just uh, just kind of suffocate teams. I'm not sure if they have, you know, without the the Kavarius Hayes on the back end to, to really anchor things. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to play like the same style of defense. I do think they're going to need to be a team that uh, – that forces turnovers and, and is disrupted that way. And we saw it against the team that, that takes care of the ball. Well, so uh, I, I would say that Florida's uh, Florida's defense wasn't, uh, I, I wouldn't say in, in incredible. I wouldn't say, but I would say it was, it was quite good. I thought it was, uh, yeah, that's certainly good enough to win. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was quite good. I, I'm not going to say it was elite defense, but some of it is who they're playing. And, and Eric just brought up one action that Utah state uh, runs that I hadn't seen them do a ton on video. Um, is a is a little curl action off a of back screen that they run. Um, I thought it was really effective in the second half, Eric. Uh, in particular, they they have a big or a forward flash. Usually, it was Justin Bean, I guess, because they trust him to pass. Um, but but he would pop out, and Merrill would usually then flash to the left side of the floor, cut away, and then come back to the ball on on either a dribble handoff or kind of a very easy pass. Um, Meanwhile, the ball side wing curls in, in kind of screens the matchup back to the ball, uh, which can get the defense out of sorts. And that's those actions. I thought Kerry Blackshear got particularly lost and was like playing catch up, which he's just not quick enough to do. Um, it creates multiple matchup advantages. So even when Florida didn't switch the initial pass, Eric, to the post or to the post player, it's still very hard to defend. And I didn't think Florida was really up to it. No, yeah, like I mean, that's really good offense. I think that they, uh, yeah, they just run awesome stuff. The thing about those curls is that uh, uh, it gives you a couple options. Whether it's you know being able to to flare out because you you see this with this back screen into uh, into curl, and uh, sometimes the defender goes underneath that, knowing that the person who's curling can just get the ball and take two hard dribbles towards the towards the paint and get a layup. Uh, so if that happens, you can flare out for an open shot, especially when it's Sam Merrill. Uh, where also it's like, hey, you know, people are pretty concerned with that Merrill three-point shot, as you absolutely should be. 
Um, so you, uh, you, you chase him there and suddenly he's, uh, he's going hard towards the paint because uh, the defense overplayed and uh, really tough to defend. Um, I think that uh, Florida not going to their, to their one, three, one, I think it showed a, uh, showed a level of respect for the way that, uh, that Utah state passes the ball. And, uh, and I do think it's wise that they didn't go into it. I think whenever Florida isn't like, you know, like holding the other team to like 20% shooting from the field, people are like, oh, go to the one, three, one. I'm not as much a fan of the one, three, one. And I also think that uh, I think the Utah state would, uh, would have been pretty, pretty good against it. So I think it was wise not to go to that, but uh, um, yeah, I think Florida handled it. Okay. Not great. Uh, but uh, when, uh, when your team is good as, uh, as Utah state, um, offensively, I think that Florida's got to got to feel relatively happy with how they uh, how they defended. Yeah, I mean those curl actions just put so much pressure on the ball screen defender, right? Like you you have to stop the ball. So if you chase the ball, like Eric said, you can flare out, right? And and that gives you some insight. Also, by the way, I think that gives you insight into why they're so good on the offensive glass, Eric. The Aggies, beyond just being tall. Because if you put that much pressure on the ball screen defender to stop the ball, and then somebody else has to recover to the cutter, right? You got if you help, then there's a lot of people that are suddenly moving away from the rim when the shot goes up, and are in disadvantaged position. You know what I mean? Like you're kind yeah. of so you get like it's not just athleticism, and I know a lot of offensive rebounding is can you tap out? How big are you? But you know there's still value in being in good position. And I think that's that's part of it. But man, I mean, when you can get Sam Merrill or Ava Porter going downhill to the basket, there's one a really good chance that Ava Porter is going to be able to hit an open guy on the perimeter, even if you communicate and defend beautifully. Uh, and then you know Sam Merrill showed us that he can make those shots. I think that that kind of running advantage, though, that those curl screens create, is something Florida should should think about, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's just something that gets your players going downhill. And that's something that, you know, Florida is going to play these lineups that have Andrew Nemhard and, and Noah Locke uh, and Scotty Lewis, uh, their starting group. I mean, none of those guards are particularly elite at getting dribble penetration and going, uh, going downhill towards the hoop. So, I mean, if you get into these curl actions, it gives them that step that they need that, that initial uh, yeah, just stride on the defender that gets yeah. them into the paint where they can make plays. Um, I, yeah, I would love to, uh, I would love to see Florida use some of that. They used it a few times. I mean, they have that like box pin down kind of set that you, Keontae Johnson had that one key bucket. Well, didn't turn out to be too key against Butler, but at the time was, was a big one where, uh, he got an and one when the defender tried to take a charge, but I mean, right. it just show just how, how dynamic he can be off those little curls where he catches the ball at the, you know, the elbow or a little bit closer to the hoop. Uh, and he turns and he's got an advantage situation. Uh, yeah, really, really good offense. I think it's really, there's a lot of things you can do out of it. It's also something that I think perfectly fits into, uh, you know, you, you get someone, you pass the ball to someone coming off a screen. Uh, they can square up, they can shoot, they can keep dribbling. Uh, you know, when someone comes off a curl, they can just flare to the perimeter instead of, uh, instead of going to the curl. If the defense is, uh, is looking for that, the person who sets a screen for the curl can flash towards the hoop or they can flare out to the corner. Uh, it actually is one of those things I think Mike White would really like where it's, uh, um, you've, it's not like, Hey, this, this set is for this player to get the ball at this exact moment and shoot here. Uh, it's still something you make a lot of reads out of. So I think it would be, uh, it's something that gets defenders or sorry, gets offensive players going downhill. Uh, it's something where offensive players can, can make some reads out of it. Uh, I, I think it would be really wise for, for the team to pick up. 
Yeah, I think Eric made a good point before we started the show. Um, we were chatting about the the show before we went on air, and, and Eric's point was you watch Utah State run actions like that, you get why Florida fans are kind of upset. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they really do run spectacular offense, and it's something that uh... – uh, yeah, it's something that I think that some some people think like, hey, like, well, which I've got to say, like, there's people that are going to say like, yeah, why can't Florida do that if Utah State can do that? Uh, Utah State's really old. Um, they've got kind of experienced players. Um, Craig Smith is also he's got like he's a he's got to be someone who teaches offense really well. I mean, he got South Dakota three years ago to be a really good offensive team, um, and he inherited a Utah State team that was 132nd in. Uh, uh, in offense the year prior and then his first year at Utah State uh, they were 39th in offense so uh, he's clearly someone who can coach it uh, and uh, and develop guys but I mean he was good right away at Utah State offensively when he went there because he's only been there two years and uh, both years they've been spectacular offensively so uh, yeah but I, I, mean, I think that they uh, not only are they good offensively but I think they do something that I think Florida fans would love to see and that's uh, these curl actions that get players uh, going towards the hoop because that has been what Florida's offenses has lacked. I would say is just uh, that pressure of people driving the basketball towards the hoop. Yeah, agree. Uh, let's close out with with a listener question from uh, Jake Gingrich asks, "What's up with Noah Locke? Seems like a liability right now if he's not knocking down shots. Doesn't finish at the rim, despite his effort. Is a step slow on defense." Yeah, I someone who shot the ball uh, a little bit better of late. I mean, you know, two for six against Utah State, uh, three for four, I think, against Providence. I think he was like three for eight or three for nine against uh, against Butler. So, I mean, not spectacular numbers shooting the basketball, not like the the forty plus percent he showed last year, but he has started to shoot the ball a little bit better. Um, the thing is, you know, that's uh, I, Florida. I think kind of needs him to be the forty forty percent three point shooter and. Um, you know, he's a guy that when I've talked about poor shot selection, uh, unfortunately, he's always been someone who has kind of factored into that conversation. Uh, he's someone who took some tough, tough dribble jumpers yeah. that I just, I, I, he, maybe he has the, maybe he just does it. Maybe he has the green light. I'm not sure. Um, the numbers would just show that those are shots that, that need to be avoided. And uh, he's someone who also loves to hunt floaters. Uh, you can just tell like sometimes he, he goes to drive the basketball. Um, he takes one bounce and then he picks it up and there's not a defender there. So, you know, from the moment he started to drive, he was thinking floater, floater, floater. So uh, once again, I just, I think he hunts bad shots and when he hunts bad shots, he misses them. Uh, it takes him out of rhythm and then he gets open shots and he's not confident taking. Uh, I brought it up, you know, when Florida had that drought, he had a wide open three pointer. He had zero interest in taking it. Uh, yeah. Said he stepped back into a tough dribble too. So um, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I maybe I shouldn't speculate on this, but I personally think if someone misses a lot of shots because they're bad shots, then they get good shots and they're not ready to take them or they're not confident. So uh, that's something that I think has happened with Noah Locke, and and I just think he's someone who just really needs to recognize what's a good shot for him and what's not. Yeah, I actually think that's what the staff needs to talk to him about most because here's some interesting facts. He shot forty two point five percent from three point in the in the six games prior to the Utah State game. So he's at forty two point five from the first game of the Charleston Classic on after starting the year at twenty one percent. So I think you're talking about a guy who's I really think finally starting to get his stroke back. And you know, yeah, yesterday he goes two for six. 
Uh, he hit, you know, the huge NBA three where he got fouled uh, to tie the game at 49. And made it was good to see him make the free throw, by the way. Um, he's shooting 88% at the line this year. Not a huge sample size, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I what I want him to do is take good shots because I Jake's second point is important, which is that I think Noah plays with great effort and is a smart defender, but I do think that the athleticism deficit we saw it in the Mississippi State game last year, right on the last play, like. I don't think Noah did necessarily anything wrong. Like you could argue maybe he got too high up the floor, but otherwise he kind of did what he was coached to do. It's just athletically you can't deal with like Nick Weatherspoon, right? And like there are players that he's just not going to be able to guard Sam Merrill being kind of one of those. What bothered me a little yesterday was I didn't think his effort was tremendous all the time, Eric. Um, and I, and I, it's hard to like gauge that. Oh, I didn't know if his effort was good, but here's an example that you can gauge. There was one possession where Florida got Utah state took a bad shot. I think it was a, a Brock Miller three point attempt. Florida gets a quick rebound. This is in the second half with Florida still leading. Uh, and Scotty Lewis starts to run off the miss white screaming, push, push, push. You can hear him from my seat and lock kind of jogs up the floor that's transition offense. Like you got to go. Yeah. Well, uh, something that's interesting, just looking at, uh, looking at, uh, at Noah Locke's kind of offensive numbers. Uh, one thing that was interesting, I was trying to like fit this into like maybe an article or something. It didn't work. So I'll sell it, say it here. Uh, he's taken <laughs> one quarter of Florida's transition shots. So he's taken more transition attempts than pretty much anyone. Like he's taking a lot of them, but he hasn't shot well in transition. He's at 0.75 points per possession. Um, he's also someone that Florida has tried to run more screens for this year. Um, he shot 27.3% or 0.727 points per possession. Um, (laughs) as a ball handler, he's at zero point or sorry, as a pick and roll ball handler, he's at 0.2 points per possession. That was 0.2 points per possession, putting him in the first, putting him in the first percentile nationally. Um, and when you add in pick and rolls that in like pick and roll derived offense, so that's either shots that he takes or, um, where he passes the ball and, uh, and someone takes a shot, uh, that 0.429 points per possession. So he's just not someone who offers value as a playmaker. So I think that that kind of plays into him not making shots because, or sorry, not being valuable if he's not making shots, because he's just also not someone who is going to play, make and make the guys around him better which is when he's a 40% three-point shooter, totally, totally fine. And I, I really do believe that he's going to get back to that. I, I think well, his form and is, he has, been is, has gotten a lot game, more comfortable. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Oh. That's right. That was a great number you pulled. But uh, Or I think I might have even – yeah, Denver Parler tweeted about that as well. He had a number like oh, did that. He? So it's, it, he's, he is, he's definitely like um, – definitely is, is starting to shoot the ball better. Um, and, yeah, I, I, you know what? To be honest, I didn't notice anything on the, the kind of effort side of things. Once again, I think that that's something that live you probably pick up a little more than uh, uh, than me on first watch on the broadcast. Uh, but once again, I just see those shots he took, the floaters, and uh, so, so I mean, I just I look at I, like this. This might just sound rude, and I, I I don't want it to sound that way. But when you look at his numbers from last year and this year as well, um, he is a good catch and shoot three pointer, three point shooter, and that is about it. Everything else, like whatever other measure that you measure an offensive basketball player. He, he is a below average player. He showed that he can be an outstanding catch and shoot three point shooter. 
Um, and that's just something that I think needs to be focused on. So not, um, not being a pick and roll ball handler and shooting off the dribble or not, um, you know, not looking for a floater in transition. I just think that um, uh, finding shots, relocating on drives, to try to get those, those catch and shoot attempts uh, that just needs to be a focus for him. Do you think that, you know, that strength might be one that's better suited for, for less minutes bench roll where, you know, you see it in the NBA, the guy comes out, hits his first shot, hits one of his first two shots, maybe his minutes increase, but otherwise, you know, his role is less because Florida has guys, Quest Glover, Trey Mann, who are a little more creative. Well, um, I, I think the way that, uh, uh, I, I do think that like having a, someone who can shoot the ball like that in the starting lineup is not a bad idea, but I, I just, you know, you do replace him with, with Trey Mann, but then you've got Trey Mann uh, playing next to Andrew Nembhard and next to Kerry Blackshear where he doesn't have a, uh, uh, he doesn't have the opportunity to have the ball in his hands a ton. Or uh, do you try starting Quez Glover? I, I actually would try starting Quez Glover and seeing what he can do as a off the ball kind of threat because I think that so many of Glover's minutes this year have come next to Trey Mann and, and with some of these bench units and he's had to be a ball handler. And I actually think that Quez Glover so far has shown to be better off the ball than on it. So I think you put him out there with the starting group. He might, uh, he might add value as someone who can stand and shoot. Uh, you might, you know, you may be a little bit matchup reliant if you're, if you're going to start, uh, start your point cards like that. But um, I, I don't mind, but yeah, truthfully, I don't mind Noah Locke in the starting lineup for that exclusive catch and shooting role, but he just, it has to be that he has to be a catch and shoot guy. I just think that, um, mistakes have happened and, and poor shots have come when he's tried to be more than that right now, at least right now. I mean, he's obviously a sophomore with, with a ton more basketball to play and uh, someone who's an incredibly hard worker, who's pro- who's going to add to his game. Uh, but just right now, I, the other, the other kind of skills of the offensive game just uh, aren't there for him. There it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I hope that we shed some light on, you know, what happened yesterday, tough loss, kind of talked through it. Uh, Long Beach State next Saturday after the Christmas break. Team breaks for Christmas. And then into the meat of uh, SEC basketball, Eric. Yeah, something that uh, will, uh, you know, you see the way the non-conference uh, went. It kind of has to be treated as a blank slate with uh, with tons of opportunities. And that's, uh, that's what the SEC has. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and we're, you know, that's the this like week between games thing that seems endless is finally over. Uh, after we have we only have two in the next 13 days Long Beach Saturday and the SEC opener in Gainesville on ESPN against Nate Oates in Alabama. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and call Florida's first three SEC games must wins. Florida, uh, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, Florida, Missouri. If you want to have the type of year we talked about having where you can win an SEC championship and then compete uh, late into the NCAA tournament, got to start strong in SEC play. But we'll burn that bridge when we get there, Eric. Um, (laughs) Merry Christmas to everybody.